1: of rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods
0: market welcome to the new books network hi and welcome to new books and sports a channel on the new books network of podcasts my name is Kelly mcfall from newman university and i'm usually the host of the new books and genocide studies channel but occasionally i pinch hit on new books and sports and i'll be doing that occasionally this spring and today I'm thrilled to welcome Frank Andre Garrity to the show. Frank is Associate Professor of History at Columbia University, and there's a longer title to that that I'll let him get into. Uh, and he's the author of a truly fantastic book called The Sports Revolution, How Texas Changed the Culture of American Athletics, published by the University of Texas Press. The book combines a sophisticated analysis of the way economic changes, the civil rights movement, and second wave feminism combined to create a new context for sports in Texas and combines it with a really well-written narrative of the individuals and moments that interacted in this context to change the direction of sports for Texas and for the country. I'm excited to have a chance to talk with Frank about the book. So, Frank, welcome, and thanks for joining us in New Books and Sports.
1: Kelly, thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here.
0: We always start with the same question. Frank, tell us a little bit about yourself. Say something about myself.
1: Well, um, so i have been at columbia university now for the last six years uh before that i taught the university of texas austin which is when this book started which we could talk about later but i'm a native new yorker number one uh and uh i'm kind of glad to be in new york uh it's not a place that i love all the time but but uh, but i do claim my new york um uh native status uh, with pride uh and the child of working class uh, Dominican and Puerto Ricans uh, who came to New York in the 19, in the post-World War II period. 19, no, actually, that's not true. My grandmother came uh, from Puerto Rico in 1941. My father's side came from the Dominican Republic in the 1950s. And I was born in New York City, raised in mostly the Bronx, but also in Queens. Um, so you know, uh, I, and, they, and, they, and they came to New York and I benefited in part from uh, the robust public zest- sector that existed as a result of the New Deal. Speaking like a historian for exec- for a second. <laughs> and my parents did too. So they retired with pensions. They live in subsidized mm-hmm. housing. And I think that even though they were immigrants, their approach to my education was to kind of laissez-faire. They kind of let me study what I wanted to study. Mm-hmm. Most people from the, my class position and racial position as Afro-Latino New Yorkers, you know, we're going to college to go into the professions and become lawyers and doctors and businessmen. And my parents had put that pressure on me. And thank goodness, because I'm not that kind of person. So as a result, I was able to kind of make my way into the social sciences and the humanities as an undergrad at Syracuse University and then in graduate school. I got my master's at Illinois, Chicago, and then my PhD at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. And I loved history. You know, uh, and I and part of that was shaped by the social movements uh, uh, and the politics of the time of the late 80s, and early 90s, the black student movement on my campus. Um, The struggle um, that emerged in the wake of the Gulf War uh, in 1990 had a huge impact on me. And it allowed me to think about the role of thinkers and intellectuals uh, as as people who can intervene in in society, in the classroom and beyond. So when the, when the thought of getting a PhD occurred or came to me, because it was not something that was on my horizon, I just it just clicked and it made sense to me. Uh, and then I wind up uh, you know, pursuing, uh, I guess, what we call the life of the mind, but really influenced by uh, you know, Black studies and Black thinkers, for sure. The Du Bois's, the Angela Davis's, the C.L.R. James's, uh, because uh, it I be, became clear to me that in the Black intellectual traditions, uh, that, you know, being a, a, an activist and intellectual, we're not, uh, opposing identities that you could, you can harmonize both. And I think I've tried to do that throughout my career and that really informed the stuff that I've been working on to this day, which is essentially things that come out of black history, come out of the history of social movements. And then more recently in the world of sports.
0: Yeah. That's yeah. Say, say a little bit more about that, because I can see as you talk about how that ties, but where, where did your work start and how did you end up doing sports?
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, part of the uh, the motive to go to grad school was that I wanted to have a better sense of uh, my family history. Mm. Uh, you know, um, you know, a lot of immigrant families from the Caribbean had deep ties to their homelands. Uh, my family didn't. My family, mm. the ties were severed for a variety of reasons. And I wanted to have a better sense of uh, the of the Caribbean background that I had in my, you know, my case, Dominican and Puerto Rican, but then eventually wound up studying Cuba. Mm -hmm. And in particular, I wanted to understand the black experiences in the Spanish speaking islands as the Caribbean. And that really informed the work I did for my doctorate. Mm -hmm. I wanted to understand how societies that uh, claim to be not racist, claim to be racially inclusive, have this history and ongoing practice of discrimination. That was very much the central question of my earlier work. Um, and how that, those questions were shaped by the Caribbean's relationship with the United States, given the fact that the U.S. was an imperial and still is an imperial power in the region, certainly was in Cuba, Dominican Republic, and Puerto Rico. And so you know, that really became the seeds of my dissertation and then my first book, which was called Forging Diaspora, which looked at the relationships between Afro-Cuban intellectuals and activists and artists and African-American ones in the first half of the 20th century, before mm. the triumph of the Cuban revolution that put Fidel Castro in power in 1959. And the book was really trying to understand how black communities, you know, divided or separated through by national boundaries and cultural and linguistic differences forged a common politics, forged a common identity, right? A diasporic identity, as I argued. Uh, and that was very much shaped by the fact that they were experiencing Jim Crow segregation in the United States a, certain degrees of discrimination in Cuba and how that was very much shaped by this bigger imperial presence that Cuba was a part of, a central part of in that period of, uh, of the 20th century before the Cold War, essentially before the revolution severed those relations. So that's that's how I wound up doing that. And then after I did that book, uh, I kind of turned to a long-standing passion in my life, and that was sports. Uh, I was a sport. I was an athlete, I guess, as a kid. Uh, and in high school, I was a baseball player. Uh, and, um, and I dis- but it was also a kind of intellectual exercise for me. I was always fascinated by sport history, partly because of the predominance of people of color in it. And partly because I was a practitioner. I played, right? Uh, you know, I played in the midst of, you know, uh, the, the kind of this, the playground basketball scene, for example, in the Bronx, right? I wasn't very good at basketball, but, you know, <laughs> basketball, stickball, Street football, all those things were central parts of my life, central parts of my being and coming of age in the Bronx in the 1980s in a period where my educational experience was a bit disaliening, you know, a little alienating for me. And so for me, the kind of the the baseball diamond became the place where I found myself. And um, so then after I finished the Cuba book, to make a very long story shorter, uh, I decided to bring that into my professional life. Uh, And I had been reading books on sport history. You know, there was this kind of emerging field i think we could call critical sports studies and in the kind of social sciences and humanities uh that predates that period for sure but it was starting to come together in the american studies association for example and i kind of said i'm going to do this i'm going to i'm going to work on you know on on sports now you know with an eye towards its impact on society right not just sports for sports sake not just to tell you what happened in this world series but to tell you why what happened in that world series matters in the bigger picture beyond sports right for example just speaking for example. So that's what happened. That happened about 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And that's what led me to do the book that I just published, the sports revolution. Um, uh, and, uh, and I'm glad I made the shift. It was a big jump for me. I had to sort of go back to graduate school and do some reading, yeah. but that's kind of why I do this. I love to sound awfully cliche. I love to learn mm-hmm. and I love the challenge of learning a new field and picking up new approaches to history writing. And that's, you know, that's what this book allowed me to do.
0: Um, well, let's turn to the book and, and maybe start at the 30,000 foot level, but the book's titled The Sports Revolution. What was the sports revolution that happened in and around Texas in the, in the 1960s and 70s? What, what's the brief summary?
1: Yeah, and the sports revolution, you know, is emerging in Texas, but it has its national impact, and that's what I'm trying to show. It's this convergence of the growth of what we can call a sports industry, right, uh uh fueled by entrepreneurs in the case of texas many of them oil men or sons and oil baron families who decide that they want to invest in sports in the 1950s and 60s right uh they decide that they want uh their cities in texas in this case mostly houston dallas and a little bit of san antonio and austin uh, they want to put Texas on the map and they want to do it through sports, right? And this is happening at the same time that the Black Freedom Struggle, what we call the Civil Rights Movement in that period, uh, and other social movements are having a profound impact on society, right? Leading to desegregation, leading to you know massive changes in American society, right? And so what the sports revolution becomes is this interesting confluence and alliance between sports entrepreneurs uh, and Athletes, many of them from marginalized backgrounds, Black, Latinx, women athletes, and others who somehow find themselves in this position of of creating a new sports industry, right? That expands and comes into places like Texas, like Houston and Dallas and San Antonio and other places in the Sun Belt, which is what I argue in the book. Uh, And that has a profound impact on American sporting culture, right? This interesting alliance of entrepreneurs and, and athletes and also impelled by activism, Right from the social movements of the time, to create uh, a new industry that creates opportunities for super talented athletes, uh, creates enormous wealth for a lot of sports entrepreneurs, right, and then all the people who come along with it, the sports media, uh, some athletes, uh, etc., and, and, um, and then that transforms American society and American sporting culture, and, and in some ways it nationalizes sporting culture in a way that it hadn't existed before. And so I'm interested in telling that story, right, to kind of bring the story of the civil rights movement's impact on sports, right, the story of the black athlete with these massive economic and social changes that are happening in the sports industry, because I'm suggesting you can't talk about one without the other.
0: And and we have listeners across the world. So can you say maybe you you use the term Sunbelt? Can you say a little bit more about the economic and demographic changes that are that are maybe changing the way in which the Sunbelts and and Texas kind of interact with the rest of the country? Absolutely.
1: Right. So Sunbelts a term that, you know, it it emerges from, you know, boosters in the South who are trying to remake the South, you know, starting in the 1930s, but really taking shape after World War II, uh, from an agrarian society that's defined by agrarian society, agriculture, um, agricultural commodities to modern suburbanized societies. Right. Uh, fueled by federal investment for sure, and fueled by the massive migration uh, into uh, the South and the Southwest, right? The a region ranging from Georgia all the way to you know, Arizona and, 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 and then even Southern California, right? So you're seeing this kind of massive population shift, massive development and uh, redevelopment of ec- economies in this region. And sports becomes very much part of that story, right? The, the growth of the industry in there I may mean, existed before that, but it expands dramatically in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, right, and so, you know, the Sun Belt becomes this term that allows us to understand this regional dynamic, right, that then it has a national impact, but it really changes the way the South and and Southwest are understood, it changes the way Southerners live, right, Uh, and it changes the way, um, changes their their political impact for sure, and we still see that to this day, right, Um, and so, so that's what the sunbelt is for those who are not familiar with that term in US, U.S. history, right? And it's still used to this day, right? It's still used particularly to mark certain kinds of politics on the national level. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm trying to kind of demonstrate how the legacies of conquest and colonization Jim mm-hmm. Crow segregation are part of that story too, right? And how that changes as a result of that dynamic as well, right? So to talk about the growth of the sunbelt is to also talk about the social transformations, um, that were rooted in that history, that brutal exploitative history of, of displacement, land dispossession and slavery and labor exploitation and segregation.
0: So let's, and, and I know this is not a fair question, but, but maybe could you briefly sketch what the sports landscape looks like in Texas before all of this, this happens?
1: Yeah. So, uh, you know, sports in various guises is practiced before this period for sure. Right. Um, you know, most historians, you know, locate the kind of growth of modern sporting culture in a place like Texas in the late 19th century, 1890s, right, moving into the 20th century, right? And uh, it comes out of, you know, one kind of physical education, looking at this dynamic emerging at this at, this, at the high school level, for, for sure. And in fact, that's probably the, the foundation, you could argue. Um, and then the growth of You know, sports teams, uh, sporting programs at the collegiate level, uh, all sorts of barnstorming, you know, teams at the amateur level and the semi-professional level that are emerging and and all what we associate in the American major sports, baseball, basketball, um, football, for sure. Right. Football becomes arguably the most important sport in the story, certainly in the case of Texas and other parts of the South. Right. So, uh, you know, before the 1960s, you know, Sport was um, was, you know, widely practiced, you know, at all social levels, including in black communities in a separate realm because of Jim Crow segregation, formal and customary. Right. But it very much is centered on high school and college sports. Right. The the backbone of Texas sports is is high school sports. And that's something that's well known, thanks to the book Friday Night Lights, which your listeners might be familiar with by Buzz Bissinger, published in the late 1980s. Right. So. um, so, so you have this robust sporting culture, right? Emerging and you know, in this kind of context, again, of a society that's, that's segregated and, and, and rooted in these exploitative dynamics, uh, but it's really concentrated and popularized at the high school and college level, right? And really the high school level for sure, right? And that starts to change you know, in the period that I pick up the story. And that's kind of the reason why I, I, I focus mostly on professional and collegiate sports, because I'm trying to demonstrate that shift Right. Even though high school sports remains central to Texas sporting culture to this day.
0: So you talked about leading figures, um, people who make their money often in oil um, and and who see sports as an opportunity to remake the, the, the social and economic and cultural world they live in. Um, and one of the ways they do this is with buildings. So I wonder if you can mm-hmm. talk about the Astrodome and Texas Stadium and and, and how they rep wh- wh- why uh why they exist why they're built and what role they're meant to play
1: yeah so uh you'll see later if we talk later uh, about this i'm rather obsessed with stadiums um <laughs> <laughs> i have a, a, a weird obsession with them but i, I grew up going to the
0: pontiac Silverdome, so i understand okay, you. So you,
1: yes you understand that and i went to all the major venues here in new york city growing up here um uh, what happens in the post World War II period, right? Uh, Sport historians have shown this is that we see this this the stadium boom of the post World War II period, where stadiums are being built across the country, often uh, um, managed and financed uh, publicly by municipalities who are convinced that attracting professional sports teams is going to lead to greater economic development, mm-hmm. put their cities on the map, make them nationally impactful, right? So that's a broad trend that we see happening, right? Where the stadium, you know, at least in the terms of baseball stadiums, go from these smallish ballparks uh, into these bigger, luxurious venues that have a lot of bells and whistles, technologically speaking. And I'm arguing in this book that it is these stadiums in Texas, the ones you mentioned, the Houston Astrodome, and then the Texas stadium that's built in Dallas, suburban Dallas, Irving, Texas has a major shift has a major impact on this process right because the astrodome is the first indoor domed stadium first with air conditioning first with synthetic grass first uh with the now ubiquitous luxury box designed right to cater to an affluent demographic people who don't want to spectate among the 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 people in the bleachers uh but want to have their own privatized spectating right uh, you know, premium seating is central to every stadium that we know uh, existing. Certainly, at the at the big time level, to this day, right? Um, and so, the Astrodome has this major impact on stadium construction in this country, right? Um, and it demonstrates that you know, like certain kinds of technology can overcome you know certain climatic you know limitations, mm-hmm. right? Because Houston, you know, is a hot, humid city, and nobody wants to sit. Uh, outside in the middle of July in Texas to watch a baseball game or or anything like that, right? And so it was necessary for them to figure out how to build a venue that could be comfortable, right? That could resemble a suburbanized, you know, experience, uh, a living room, Right. What makes the astrodom interesting, though, is that, again, this is happening in the midst of the civil rights movement. So um, in Texas, in Houston, so that uh, it, it is necessary. The, 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 the founder or the person who's really the, the brainchild, the, the, the genius behind the astrodom, Rory Hoffines, who was a county judge who had been a mayor and was a major booster of sports in Houston. He as a white man understood that he needed black support. <laughs> to to get enough votes uh, for the for the bond for the bond that would that would finance the stadium right and so he gets buy-in from local black activists, and the way he does is he says that we will have a desegregated seating and employment environment in the astrodome if we vote for it and he gets black support and what makes that so what makes the astrodome beloved as an institution even though it's defunct and it's sitting there unused now in houston is that it gets buy-in from a wide demographic, right? So it has this technological impact on stadium construction, but it has a profound social impact in Houston, right? And in Dallas, we see a similar dynamic uh, with the creation of Texas Stadium, which was the first, wasn't the first home of the Dallas Cowboys, the very famous NFL franchise, but it certainly was their first that they owned themselves and controlled. And that really becomes a template for all subsequent NFL stadiums, right? A stadium that's built for professional football first, right? A stadium that has even more luxury luxury boxes, more bells and whistles, caters to an even more affluent demographic. And, you know, every single way, if you look at, for example, Jerry Jones's stadium today, the one that exists, uh, the current home of the Cowboys, it's a ripoff of the, of the original Texas stadium that was built 50 years ago, right? And so, so it is these Texas entrepreneurs who not just, bring new franchises to American sports, uh, introduce us to a whole array of supremely talented athletes from marginalized backgrounds, but they change American spectating practices. That's what they do. And that that, those become central parts of the stadium experience to the state. I mean, to to a nauseating degree, (laughs) because most of these venues now are inaccessible and really do cater to an affluent demographic, Mm -hmm. unlike the Astrodome, which really was a cross-class sort of facility, whereas most of these venues are not that now.
0: And and interestingly, <clears throat> I hadn't thought about going this this direction, but I will. Um, when the Texas Rangers come, or what comes, the Texas Rangers come to town, their stadium is not that. No. Um, why not? And 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 how does baseball fit into this football-centric story?
1: <laughs> yeah, it a great question. Uh, yeah, that I, I mean, one of my favorite chapters to write, uh, what do I, it's called, uh, what, what is it called? My God, a favorite chapter, <laughs> in my own book now, uh, looking at it, uh, Labor and Lawlessness in Rangerland. Mm-hmm. Uh, it tells the story of how the major league franchise that was known as the Washington Senators in Washington, D.C., how they somehow wind up in Arlington, Texas, suburban Dallas, Fort Worth uh, in 1972. And they do it because they have a greedy owner who's looking for uh, to cash in on, on untapped markets for Major League Baseball. Bob Short was his name. Right. Uh, a, a reviled figure in Washington, D.C. history, baseball history. Uh, and um, and so he decides after he buys the team in 1969 that, uh, you know, this D.C. market is not going to work right for us we're not drawing fans even though he has a stadium that's fairly new and the senators you know they were a terrible franchise we're not a winning franchise but you know he realized pretty quickly or decided even when he bought the team that this team was not going to stay in um in washington dc so he did what a lot of owners were doing at the time and they still do this: they go and they look for other public officials who want to bring sports to their to their cities and he finds this extremely um Uh, 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 what's the word? Ambitious, um, industrious owner name, I'm sorry, uh, uh, mayor of Arlington, Texas, Tom Vandegrift, who was willing to put all kinds of money into bringing his team, uh, bringing Short's team, the Senators to Texas. And that's how they wound up in Arlington uh, in 1972. And this is something that's a major national scandal because the Senators had this symbolic value, right? The baseball franchise, the America's pastime baseball franchise in the nation's capital. And they leave and they leave nothing behind. And, you know, the the reverberations go all the way up to Congress in which people are trying to stop this move because the senators had this symbolic value for, you know, presidential statecraft, right? All the presidents would draw first balls at at senators' games. Uh, And so it symbolized for a lot of people in this country the decline of baseball, Uh, the fact that uh, that it would leave, you know, a sacred place like Washington, D.C., in the same way that the Dodgers, the Dodgers franchise left Brooklyn for Los Angeles, right? Right. to this no town somewhere in Texas, right? Um, and so I tell that story, but then I tell the story of how this franchise somehow makes it in the midst of, you know, incompetent, greedy ownership. <laughs> and that's because they somehow assemble a, a roster of talented enough athletes to make the franchise, you know, uh, competitive and interesting for, for baseball fans in the region, right? So it's in this period, this, the range, Senator Rangers story allows me to talk about how baseball filters into the sports revolution and how in a lot of ways it's overtaken by football and other sports, right? Football and basketball start to become much more popular Mm -hmm. in this period um, than then baseball. And yet baseball is still a very important part of that story because it does have this symbolic importance in American sporting culture as America's national pastime. And because, like the other sports, it benefits from desegregation and the influx of Black and Latino athletes that make baseball popular, certainly for people in my age, when I'm coming up in the 1970s, right? Um, even though it doesn't integrate the same way that the NFL and, uh, and basketball do, the, the NBA and the ABA.
0: Yeah, that's a that's a nice bridge because I was going to go next to this this question of desegregation of college athletics and mm-hmm. and the way in which some schools like Houston or SMU are willing to adopt a, a strategy of recruiting black athletes in ways that other schools, University of Texas, Arkansas, are not. So, mm-hmm. so maybe you could say a little bit about the 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 kinds of the, the ways in which various coaches and athletic directors approached the question of desegregation and, and made decisions about that?
1: Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, so the story of what I guess we call the integration of sports has been told many times, right? Whether it's Jackie Robinson, you know, being the first Black player to play for Major League, Major League Baseball since the late 19th century, the breaking the color barrier, and all these tales of integration pioneers that we feel proud of as Americans, right? Because what happens in this period too, is that sport becomes this emblem of meritocracy and inclusion because of the influx of athletes, black athletes, and others from marginalized backgrounds, right? What is often overlooked are the economic (laughs) factors and other factors that lead to this transformation, right? And this is very clear in the case of college football in Texas and other parts of the South, right? Right where you see this interesting moment where certain athletic administrators at Houston in this case, and SMU and other schools, junior colleges had even discovered this beforehand uh, in Texas, um, uh, decide that uh, uh, if they want their athletic programs to continue to be competitive or get better uh, that they're going to need Black athletes, right? Uh, and, and some of that is, so some of that motivated, yes, by the desire of winning and building up athletic programs and building up the revenue for your universities, right? This is when, you know, colleges go really deep into sports as a way to generate revenue for their institutions, right? This is an issue that we, again, we still see to this day, right? It exists beforehand, but as the money grows bigger, and something we haven't talked about, as the role of television money and advertising money really floods into sports in this period, then the money gets bigger, Right, then sports has an outsized influence in university affairs. This is something we're struggling with to this day, not in my institution, but at most institutions, uh, <laughs> certainly in the United States. Thank goodness it doesn't, that's not the case at Columbia that I'm aware of anyway. Um, so, what does that mean? So, that, so you've got the, the incentive to build the programs, generate revenue. At the same time, you have head coaches like Hayden Fry, who signed as the uh, head football coach at Southern Methodist University in Dallas in 1961. And, you know, he was a he was a West Texan person defined as white uh, who had a moral compass and who who had said that I'm not going to take this job unless I can recruit black athletes. Right. So I zero in on Fry and Guy Lewis, the head basketball coach at the University of Houston, and Bill Yeoman, the head football coach at the University of Houston, because I want people to understand that even with these structural factors, right, that meet the need to build up your programs, the need to win games, the need to keep your job if you're a head coach uh, was, was certainly at play in deciding, uh, for these men to sign black male athletes, but they had a moral confidence and they made decisions, right. They, they, they stuck their heads out and they took risks. Right. And I think that's an important part of the story too. So, um, you know, those are programs that were getting their heads beaten by the university of Texas, you know, the, which was coached by the legendary uh, football coach, uh, Darrell Royal, uh, winning championships all the time. And they realized we're not going to compete with these guys unless we had more talent. And that really leads them to sign in 1965, Jerry Levias is the first black scholarship athlete, a football player to sign with Southern Methodists in the old Southwest Conference, which had been the dominant athletic conference in the region at the time, the predecessor to today's big 12, essentially. Um, uh, and, and, and so that's, that's what they did. And that's the story I tell. So I tell the story of that process and that inevitably leads them to ascend and actually overtake Texas in the 1970s, right? And the 1980s, right? But it is this alliance between coaches and boosters who are flooding all kinds of money into these programs. Some of that money is being filtered into some pennies thrown at the athletes to recruit them, inducements, right? Uh, That really leads to the growth of Southern Methodist football or the rebirth, I should say, uh, in the 1970s and 80s uh, and of of Houston, right? Uh, And so that tells the story of not just integration, but the growth of the, again, the college athletic football industry, right? Which in the end, produces some enormously talented football legendary players, scholarships for them. Uh, But in the end, it brings a lot of big money for coaches and athletic directors, right? And you see this very clearly as you see the growth of the management class, the growth of the coaching class, and then the skyrocketing salaries that really start by the early 1980s. And that helps us explain why head football coaches like, um, you know, um, uh, Saban at Alabama and all these other guys are getting paid $10 million a year to coach football. It's really in this period when the revenues are coming in at the same time that Black athletic labor is coming in that allows us to understand that dynamic. And that's the dynamic to this day in big time college football.
0: Yeah, and you use that phrase, Black athletic labor. And I I just want to point here to uh, just acknowledge um, a podcast that you talk about in the uh, in your acknowledgments, uh, burn it all down mm-hmm. for a really interesting contribution to the, the economic and social aspects of sports. Um, and I'm a regular listener and I think it's well worth uh, recommending to people.
1: Um, Absolutely. and also, and also, just real fast, is also on feminism in sports, right? Because, uh, yeah. I mean, one of the things that that podcast does well, and it, it really helped shape my thinking about how to write about women in sports and how to write gender sexuality in sports, mm-hmm. and that's something I also do in, in the book, too. So yeah, no, no, it's a very important part of, um, of the story and an important contribution to the sports commentary landscape.
0: Yeah, and, and, and I want to get to gender in just a minute, but but let's hold a little bit on race for a while, because um, one of the things that's really interesting is, as I read your book, is the way in which certain kind of styles, particularly of basketball, become racialized. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and in some ways, are coded black. And I'm thinking about the ABA, the American Basketball Association, FI Slamma Jamma, the early Spurs of, of George Gervin. Uh, I was, well, I don't know, of preteen in George Gervin's age. And I remember watching him play the Pistons and here. always being uh, upset at how many points you could manage to score. Um, can you say something about how that happens and about the way in which um, the style of play that becomes coded as playground or black Becomes kind of widely accepted in college basketball and pro basketball.
1: Yeah, great question.
0: Well, um,
1: you know what's happening in this period is that these predominantly white schools, for example, like the University of Houston, um, you know, who who build an excellent basketball program under Guy Lewis, and during that period, uh, are recruiting uh, 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 from black schools and and tapping into the kind of grassroots black athletic culture that exists. You know, existed in Houston, existed throughout in Texas, and Houston. You know, existed in places like New York City uh, with the very famous Rucker, uh, tournament, the playground basketball scene here in Harlem, uh, and other places throughout the country. Right, Detroit had its own scene too. Right, so you've got this already existing black, um, you know, grassroots performance culture on the basketball courts, right? You know, organized, you know, by park rec people, for example, like Holcomb Rucker. And so many people like that throughout the country is actually a a story in and of itself that really deserves to be told. Uh, And now it's schools, right? Like Houston and others who decide we're going to tap into these these sources of athletic talent, right? For their programs, right? And then that filters up to the professional level. And in fact, when the American Basketball Association emerges in 1968, uh, they're the ones who are pushing for Uh, athletes to sign straight out of high school, right? Uh, It's the recruitment of Spencer Haywood in 1969, 70, 71 that, you know, leads to him, you know, his case going to the Supreme Court that allowed him to sign with a professional team. In this case, it became the Seattle Supersonics. That's a long story, but so they're pushing the envelope, the ABA on, you know, again, tapping even deeper into these uh, reservoirs of talent, you know, beyond the college level, right? So now you've got colleges and professional leagues tapping into that to those scenes, right? This is in the pre-professionalized youth sports age. It's a very different dynamic now, right? So, um, and in Houston, you just see this so clearly. There's this amazing, uh, you know, playground scene in, in, in a gym called Fondi Rec Center, right? Which had been the place where, you know, Houston's best players would play, you know, not just black, but overwhelmingly black, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's Guy Lewis who starts tapping into that scene. And that's where he starts signing players from that scene. And that really forms the basis for his legendary early 1980s Faisalama Jamma team. Also with an addition from the African continent by, the, by coming in the form of Hakeem Olajuwon. He was really lucky around that. But nonetheless, you're seeing, again, athletic administrators, scouts, coaches, you know, going into these places that, they hadn't, done, that hadn't gone before, right? And that has enormous impact on the game itself, right? So that, you know, the ABA was a league that really pushed this, you know, this dynamic even more so than the NBA. And that's why that explains the emergence of legendary figures like Dr. J. Julius Irving, George Gervin, on and on and on, you know, and, and, and lesser knowns who were coming out of those scenes and bringing that style of basketball into the collegiate and professional level. And that changes the game. Uh, and it helps uh, make the, the game more profitable for French. Right. Uh, you know, that that, you know, that takes shape in the 70s, but it really takes shape even afterwards in the 1980s. And that's a longer story uh, that we could talk about some other time, perhaps. But um, so it is, a, again, a story of I mean, in many ways, this book is a labor history. You know, it is about right how race and labor come together. That leads to these racial that we often talk about as a racial transformation. Right. But what you're talking about is the realignment of labor markets and sports. That's what you're seeing in this period.
0: You have a, a really interesting phrase. Um talking about, I think, if I remember right, Moses Malone and Akeem Olajuwon, mm-hmm. and talking about, and I'm looking for my note through my notes here to make sure I get these, the quote right, about about this small gym they mentioned, I forgot the name, as a place to perform Black manhood on the basketball yes. court. Yes. You say a little bit about that?
1: <sighs> yes. Uh, you know, um, I, so I used to, the term perform intentionally. Um, if there's a continuity between my earlier work and this work, one of them is, is a, is a, a real respect and a real attempt to capture the dynamics of performance. Mm. You know, in my first book, I talked about the role of performance in, in the emergence of the Marcus Garvey universal Negro improvement association movement in the 1920s, which becomes, a, you know, the, the, one of the largest mass movements in, in black diasporic history. Uh, because of its emphasis on performance, right? And the way in the parades and the ways in which people were, were to perform at, you know, rallies and, and smaller gatherings, right? Uh, Garveyites um, got very good at performing. They were actually probably what they were best at, actually. And so, you know, having read performance theory, my partner's a performance study scholar, poet, uh, I took that into this book because I want us to understand, one, the labor that goes into producing a basketball game or any athletic event, right? Uh, and number two, that, you know, once the game becomes racialized as black, as it does in this period, then it becomes a form of black self-expression, mm-hmm. black identification making, and certainly for men and for women as well, right? But that's, that's a dynamic that takes shape, you know, a little later or in a different scene than the than one we see in, in these playground scenes for the most part, for, for what we know so far. So, and what I do is I use Hakim Olajuwon's autobiography as a man of African descent, right, who comes to Houston in 1980 and gets dropped in the middle of the scene. And, you know, he's an African from Nigeria, right? Uh, And he somehow has to assimilate not just how to play basketball in America, but how to do this as a black man, right? Uh, And and so there's these very interesting passages in his book in which he talks about, you know, learning certain slogans, learning how to eat fried chicken or learning how to, you know, how to play the game the way Moses Malone played, right, who became his sort of de facto mentor at the Fondy Rec Center in Houston in the early 80s. And so... You know, I think about that scene in the ways in which other writers have talked about jazz clubs and jazz scenes, right? It's, a, it's an apprenticeship scene where at, Black men, in this case, learn how to play, but they learn how to be Black men, too, right? Uh, and they're doing it on the court. That, I mean, doing it other places, too, but... Mm-hmm. You know, to take somebody from a completely different context from Nigeria and drop them into this, just to trace that dynamic, you know, the autobiography allows me to do that in ways that I think if you're just focusing on American athletes, you just sort of assume that these are Black men and of course they're Black. Mm -hmm. But, you know, racial formation, if I might sound like an academic for a a second, is a historical process that has to constantly be, you know, remade constantly, right? You're not always Black the same way throughout history. And the basketball court for black men in post-war war II America and probably before that but certainly in, 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 in my era you know the basketball court is one of those places like the jazz club and other places where, where black men learn how to be black men mm-hmm. and learn how to be virtuosic performers and that's what I'm trying to do in that in, the, in those moments when I talk about the, the kind of playground scene or the, the scene at the Fondy rec center.
0: Of course much of the story revolves around that question of, of, of blackness and about uh, desegregation and including blacks and as, as laborers and as cultural influencers um, but one of the really unusual parts of your book is your inclusion or recognition of the role of Hispanics. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you do that mostly in a chapter about the Spurs, but it's scattered throughout. So I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that. How, how, how do, what role do Hispanics play in this revolution? What opportunities does this revolution offer Hispanics? What, what should we know about this?
1: Yeah, um, well, one of the beauties of writing about Texas is, um, and you know, and then if I may go autobiographical for a second, having lived there for eleven years, <laughs> and having you know married into a Mexican American family, uh, a town of families who's been you know in Texas since 1731, is that you understand the centrality of Mexican, the Mexican origin peoples to Texas history. So there's no way I could write this book without talking about Mexican origin people. No way, right? Um, And so there's that. Right. And there and that's also informed by, you know, again, to speak like an academic for a second, by an approach to understanding race and ethnicity. Right. In a relational way. So like I have to talk about not just blackness, I have to talk about other marginalized identities in the state. And you have to talk about, you know, Mexican origin peoples and indigenous peoples, too. I don't talk about them in this book. But for a book like this, a borderland society that, you know, is right on the, you know, the border with Mexico, like that had to be part of the story. Right. So there was that. And, that, and I, I want to demonstrate how can you write a book that is attentive to race, ethnicity and gender at the same time? That's what I try to do with this book. Whether I do it successfully or not, it's another story. So, but that was my sort of scholarly ambition for this book and political one, I should say. So, so you know, it's by starting in the Texas-Mexico borderlands in my first chapter, right, I'm talking about the way sport as it does for African-Americans in the state becomes a space of survival and community formation for Mexican peoples, not just in the borderlands, but throughout the region for sure. Right. And we see this clearly in Texas sport history at the high school level for sure. Right. We see that even legendary football coaches who we define as white, a man like Tom Landry Mm -hmm. is mentored by a Mexican-American football coach growing up in, in South Texas. Right. So, um, so it is to show that even in a context of rigid segregation, somehow sport becomes this, this space of contact between Anglo, white, and Mexican and, and also African American peoples in Texas, right? And then in the in the chapter on the Spurs, the Spurs, the franchise that you know originates in the American Basketball Association, it comes in, it starts in Dallas and they move to San Antonio, which is seen as a sort of sleepy, underdeveloped military town, tourist town that was not a sports market, and somehow it becomes this it's an exemplary basketball franchise. And part of the argument that I'm making in the book is because of the ways in which the entrepreneurs who own the franchise understood that their fan base had to be, you know, in part Mexican, that you could not be successful in a city that is at least 50% Latino, Latinx, uh, Mexican origin peoples without catering to that demographic. And they needed to do that because they needed butts in the seats. And, and, and they figured out how to tap into or allow space for the kind of local Mexican-American culture. And you see that, you know, at Spurs games to this day, right? You see that when uh, Sebastian de la Cruz uh, in the 2013 NBA Finals sings the national anthem, uh, you know, in a mariachi outfit and causing a lot of consternation among white racists, but you see it in the ways in which the Spurs franchise defends him, right? This is in the pre-Trumpian age, but nonetheless, I mean, you see that in the way Greg Popovich, their coach today, his approach to racial politics and justice, social justice. So, you know, I'm trying to show how a professional franchise somehow can embed itself into a local culture. And in the case of San Antonio, that's an overwhelmingly Mexican-American culture. Right. Uh, and I you know I know this just firsthand, just being and living in San Antonio and visiting there all the time. But it's all you see that in the evidence, clearly, in the ways in which they create, you know, fan clubs, in the ways in which they create space for them in the arena in the ways in which they adopt and co-opt and commodify, you know, Mexican American culture to this day. But it's, it's not a story just of commodification. I think it is, a, is, is, is an example of farsighted entrepreneurship, I would argue, you know, you know, steeped in and rooted in the need to make a business survive, in this case, to Spurs. But, you know, not all sports franchises did that uh, and, and I think the Spurs were among the first to market to Latino fans. I think I would argue that they may very well, even before the Dodgers and the Lakers and the, and the franchise in California. So, because they had to, because it was really just, it's a dominant demographic that, they, that had to be addressed somehow.
0: You, you, you said your goal wasn't to include race, ethnicity, and gender. So let's turn to gender. Um, and ordinarily I would kind of a traditional podcast. I would focus on the the rise of women's professional tennis. Um, but that is one of the places that's maybe gotten more coverage. So I thought okay. instead of that, um, I'd ask you to talk about your chapter on the Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders mm-hmm. um, and talk about the way they went from the Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders to become the Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders and the way it, what, what that says about gender and performing gender and, and, and marketing sports in, in this period.
1: And sex. Um,
0: yeah, thank you, if you, can't, if you
1: can't write, If you can't write a book about Texas sports without talking about football or whatever these other categories that I said I couldn't, I had to include. You know, in my view, you can't write a book about Texas sports without talking about cheerleading mm-hmm. and drill teams and the, mm-hmm. their centrality to Texas sporting culture, right? Uh, and one of the first chapters I envisioned when I decided to take this book on was a chapter on the Dallas Cowboy Cheerleaders. Because, again, I wanted to write a story that was trying to be attentive to these dynamics at the same time, race, gender, class, you know, sexuality to a lesser extent. Um, but also because I want to show how dancers and cheerleaders or athletes are workers, right? Uh, and they're undercompensated and uh, underpaid and exploited often, right? Especially if they're women, right? So, um, so part of what we see happening in that period Is the transformation of a cultural practice that had been associated, you know, that had become feminized, you know, in the mid 20th century, a little bit before that. It was central to, you know, collegiate high school sporting culture, not just in terms of performing at male sporting events, but also having their own competitions, right? This is when you start to see the growth of the cheer industry. You know, I don't talk about that actively in this book, but that's that's part of the story too in the 1960s, 70s, and to this day. Right. Uh, And the ways in which if we're going to talk about women at the professional level, you got to talk about where they are in the field and where they're on the field or on the sidelines as cheerleaders. Right. So I want to talk about arguably the most impactful professional cheerleading group, uh, dance group uh, that in, in American sports history. And that's the Dallas Cowboy Cheerleaders, because they are the first right to kind of professionalize when they're formed in 1972. Uh, And the first to adopt this formula of sexualized, you know, uh, dance teams on the sidelines that are not just shaking pom poms and, you know, doing stunts, but are actually dancing, uh, you know, for their audience. Right. And how they themselves become an industry in and of themselves, they become a sort of separate labor structure that allows the Dallas Cowboys to become what they are called to this day, America's team, one of the most popular, impactful professional franchise sports, certainly in the National Football League, but in American sports history, period, right? And they still are, even if they're not winning championships like they used to. So um, so the cheerleading story is fascinating because this is happening. So they formed in 1972, which is the same year that Title IX is passed, the Educational Amendments Act that's designed to, uh, to bring gender equity to higher education, uh, but is spurring all sorts of movements to, uh, you know, to uh, promote women in sports and girls in sports, right? So that's happening at the same time that this sexualized, you know, seemingly archaic practice of cheerleading is becoming more popular, right? And I love that that, that kind of juxtaposition in that period. Uh, and so the story is of this group of dancers who, you know, are getting paid, you know, fifteen dollars a game, fourteen dollars and twelve cents after taxes, just for home games. How they inor- generate enormous value and popularity for the Cowboys, right, in their own right, in addition to the exploits of the male athletes on the gridiron. Right? But they themselves are, are value. Uh, revenue generators, even though they're exploited, right? But they're also overlooked by second wave feminists at the time. Like, I think what you, if you look at the, experience, if you actually look at their experiences beyond the makeup and, pro, you know, and, and the prop um, and the hot pants and the go-go boots, you see these are aspiring class women from a range of class backgrounds who are trying to make it, right? And one of the ways they're trying to make it is through dance uh, because dance becomes an important part of self-expression for young women and, uh, and, that, and for all women at that time. And so that's what the story is about. It's about labor exploitation, but it's also about the ways in which these women are able to kind of find in this experience, um, uh, you know, a form of self-expression and attention. And, you know, many of those former cheerleaders will still say that to this day, even if they they were exploited for their labor and they acknowledge that. And this has come out even more recently in a podcast about them. Nonetheless, it becomes this important space to understand the experience of women in sports. And that's what I'm trying to do in this book. And I'm trying to take a practice that is derided and dismissed you know, by a lot of people and to sort of insist that these are athletic women who are talented. It's a space where you know, athletically inclined women who were perceived as attractive you know, were kind of pushed into in the pre-town online era. And they're still there and they're still working and rehearsing and still doing you know, their jobs, even though they're not getting paid equitably. And they should, as many people have pointed out in recent years.
0: It's a, it's a remarkable thing that Netflix's series, I think it's yeah. called cheer, cheer, has suddenly become wild, not wildly, but significantly popular and has elevated Cheer as kind of a object of po- popular attention. That's right. And
1: one of the things you see in that, I mean, you see a lot of things on that podcast, I mean, that in that series, we could talk about that on a separate episode. Yeah. Or is the exploitation, by <laughs> right, yeah. the coach. Yep. But you see how it attracts your marginalized folks, queer folks, you know, working class people, right? Uh, if you want to understand, you know, you know, queer self-expression, it's pretty clear it's happening in cheer. It's a really mm-hmm. interesting dynamic, right? So, like, to understand the experience of those people, uh, you know, cheering, looking at the world of cheer and cheerleading at all levels
0: allows you to do that. Another thing to watch. So, so one of the things that I did after reading, or in the process of you reading your book, I, 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 I um, I'm going to use the word encouraged, although they might use the word forced, my wife and my daughter to watch this um, documentary you cite. Um, I think it's called Seconds to Go or yeah. something like that. Yeah. Um, documentary about the production of of of, of in that case, in an Ohio State UCLA football game, um, which points to both the role of television in propelling this revolution, but also the way in which the this television and the choices they made are gendered in a way that um, both reflects the attitudes and the preferences of the times, but also I assume is intended to reflect what they thought the audience wanted to see. Yes. So could you say something about the role of TV in this revolution? Thank you for asking that. Uh, television,
1: uh has a central role in this story. Uh, it provides revenue for sure, right? It provides dollars. Uh, I mean, TV contracts between networks like ABC and all the major networks. And then subsequently, excuse me, you know, um, cable networks and on and on and on to the, to the to kind of the streaming digital age of today become central sources of revenue, right? For professional franchises and for universities and college athletes, right? And they drive so much of the policies uh, around uh, those institutions uh, to this day. So, um, so TV has an important role in providing revenue, right? Uh, al- which allows, you know, these franchises to sign in one way or another, the top athletes throughout the country, uh, but it also provides a platform and exposure that nationalizes these social dynamics that we're seeing you know, with the influx of black and other marginalized athletes into into the, the 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 living rooms of uh of Americans and, and people around the world you know once the television becomes globalized later right I mean how do I know about Texas sports by watching as I said at the beginning of the book uh watching the very famous Monday night football game as a seven-year-old in a crammed apartment in New York City in 1978 between the Houston Oilers starred by Earl Campbell versus the Miami Dolphins I mean my awareness of Texas was by watching the Cowboys and the Oilers and the Spurs and these teams that I write about on television right? So. So it's, it's, and it allowed me to understand like, Oh, wow. Like, Oh, look, look at black people, you know, invisible in a sport, invisible, not invisible, visible in a sporting context. Right. So, so it provides exposure, it provides revenue, but it also, and you see this most clearly with the Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders, it provides a way in which, um, in which gender scripts are reinforced in sports that gender segregation is reinforced in certain kinds of ways. Right. Because the, one of the, if you want to argue the primary beneficiaries of the sports revolution were men, <laughs> for sure, white men and, and a few talented black athletes and other talented athletes from marginalized backgrounds and those who are involved in sports media. And you see this clearly when you just look at the history of a network like ABC Sports, which was which, which showcased in that documentary, Seconds to Play, in the ways in which, you know, the, the, these sports are crafted, carefully orchestrated to be, you know, consumed by Americans in ways that, um, in the case of football, uh, sanitize the violence uh, that occurs on the gridiron, in the ways in which uh, these male TV executives and cameramen and directors and producers are producing this as they perceive it for a male audience. And that explains how the ways in which they sexualize cheerleaders. And this is Sidaris plays a, a, a longtime director of college football and the NFL uh, Monday Night Football telecast for ABC Sports is a, a key figure in this story. He proudly says in that documentary, I'm a dirty old man, and he's the one who who, who uh, pioneered the honey shot, as he called it, right? Which was, you know, you know predicated on pornographic shots, to be honest, you know, the, the, the cum shot and pornography, which is also happening at that time. And, uh, and so you can't understand that the role of television in this story, but I understand that the impact of men, right? In shaping how the sport is consumed. It's not, it's not making it reducible to men, right? Because women watch these things, but it's certainly crafting a story uh, that's palatable to men. And a key part of that is by showcasing these women performing in front of the cameras, you know, like they did with the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders, right? And that's still part of the kind of formula of, of, of broadcast, television broadcast of sports to this day, right? So, you know, I think one of the things that the TV discussion allows us to see is the, the ambivalence, you know, and the ambiguous impact of this revolution, like all revolutions. They produce these things that are good and substantive changes that change society in good ways. And then they produce these other dynamics that, you know, reinforce and realign hierarchies. And that's what we see happening here. And by looking at television, you can actually see this very clearly, right? Not just with the cheerleaders, but also with, you know, with the signing of, a, of the pioneering broadcast journalist Phyllis George, the Texan beauty queen who, signs, uh, who signed by CBS Sports to be on the NFL Today pregame show in 1975 uh you know you're seeing this kind of the emergence of the you know the beauty culture the kind of the, the pageant queen on the sideline figure right i mean that's happening you know after phyllis george in the 1970s and up until this day and all the gender exploitative dynamics that that produced right from that period yeah
0: so you end your story with smu and the death penalty <laughs> um i live as we were talking about before we started a recording i live in wichita and the uh the big question, Wichita, is what to do now that University of Houston, which is, again, a basketball and a football power, is moving to a reconstructed Big 12 conference and leaving Important. Wichita State behind. Uh, and they're, of course, doing this because Texas has decided that it's not good enough to be in Texas anymore. They need to yes. be in the SEC. Yes. So I wonder... What is the legacy of all of this? And and if if Texas is a center of the stories, story in the 70s and 80s, or 60s, mm-hmm. 70s and 80s, is it still a center of the story now? Yeah, wow.
1: You asked me to talk about the present, I'm a historian, Kelly. <laughs> no, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I left it to the end when we have almost no time. That's why I ended in the 1980s, uh, although I jump ahead you know, in, in ways that epilogues can do. Um, well, yeah, they're, they're central to the story for sure. But the dynamic of social change in sports has changed radically from that period, which is what I say in the end of the book, right? So the struggles in sports there are not around inclusion on the ball field and on the diamond. It's about, you know, really altering the power dynamics that drive sports. That hasn't changed, right? That has not changed. And it didn't change in the sports revolution era. And, it, and it's still with us to this day. And that dynamic is that, you know, that the most of the decisions that are made in big time sports at the collegiate and professional level are made by white men. That's still the case, right? So, you know, we've got all these people on, on the playing field and on the diamond, you know, and on the, on the courts playing who are from marginalized backgrounds, but not that doesn't translate into management decisions or management uh, power whatsoever. So, um, so now we've got a different terrain of social struggle. That's very different than this period. Integration is not novel, right? It stopped being novel at the end of that book, right? By the 1980s, right? Um, uh, What what needs to happen now is an altering of the power relations that drive sports, okay? So that can emerge from a place like Texas. And I think what was so interesting about last year, if you just go back to 2020 and look at the explosion of a, a protest that happened in the wake of the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, is to see how you know, among the first college athletes that became visible protesters or were the football players at the University of Texas and Texas A&M. I mean, really interesting ways in which they like stuck their neck out and then other, other college athletes mm-hmm. did too, but it was very, I was actually shocked at the ways in which predominantly black football players at Texas and Texas A&M you know, were really pushing the envelope around certain questions, right? Um, and so that was interesting. Um, and I think because again, because you still have this gigantic demographic, and Texas is still growing. There are people still moving there after the pandemic. It's still politically important. Uh, it still has this legacy of conquest, colonization, segregation, like other parts of the South and other parts of this country. But because of its dynamism, because of its diverse, um, you know, kind of demographic, and because it's still a growing society, it's going to be nationally impactful. It has to be, right? Uh, whether it's the epicenter of whatever sports revolution we might be experiencing now. I'm not sure, but it 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 has an outsized impact because of its legacy from this period, and because it remains powerful to this day. I mean, to Texas, the University of Texas football, despite the fact that it hasn't won much in recent years, is still one of the top revenue revenue generating programs in the country. It's one of the few that actually turns a profit, uh, and that's because of its immense impact and influence and 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 fan base. You know, that goes back to this period and before. So. So, yeah, I think that's how I would approach the question. I think it's, it's impactful, whether it becomes an epicenter the way I think it was in the 60s and 70s. I'm not sure, but uh, but it, it will certainly play a role uh, in whatever changes we see happening in the sports landscape. And Kind
0: of a, a, a corollary question to that. You mentioned uh, UT's, uh, Texas's women's basketball program. Yeah. Um, I wonder how what are often disparagingly referred to as minor sports or Olympic sports, softball, volleyball, soccer, women's, uh, women's basketball probably doesn't fit that category anymore, but it did at one point. Yes. How did they fit into the story?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I don't have an answer for you. Um, yeah. Other than because, you know, like all authors, I had to make choices. Uh, yeah. You know, part of what shaped just real fast, what shaped the, the choices I made in the book where you know scholarly concerns you know concerns around certain coverage it's actually very difficult to write about sports in texas um uh you have a lot of people have very strong opinions about sports mm-hmm. in texas too so you got to navigate that uh is i left texas right after the book i signed with the book mm-hmm. right so i envisioned a kind of more grassroots book than mm-hmm. what you know with more attention to high school sports you know, there's nothing in here about soccer which is almost you know unthinkable but it doesn't It's not addressed in the book. Mm -hmm. So I I had envisioned a bit more of a grassroots story. And if I stayed in Austin where I was living, it would have been that, but it's not. So that's part of the reason why, just to explain why I picked what I decided to pick. Um, But there's no question that these sports are growing, you know, as offshoots to the revenues that are coming into these athletic programs as offshoots uh, or as a response to uh, the growth of women's sports because of the activism that really starts to take shape in the 70s and before, but certainly the 70s and 80s, that results in programs like University of Texas Women's Basketball Program, but other sports too, right? So you see this growth of this sports apparatus that you know, includes the so-called minor sports. Uh, many of these sports, sports played by women, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it becomes impactful in, in the sense that it tells, it allows it to tell the story of women in sports in that period. It allows us to see, you know, I think something that I didn't even think of when I was working on the book, but I, you know, certainly in the case of more elite places, as we saw with the admission scandals of recent years, you know, the ways in which these, you know, these, uh, you know, wealthy families are able to kind of mobilize their, their real and imagined athleticism mm-hmm. of, their, of their children in these minor sports into athletic, into, you know, into admissions into elite colleges and universities throughout the country. That, that's got a fascinating history, I'm sure, you know, that predates the scandals of the last few years. So, you know, I think it's part of the story in so far that it becomes these spaces, these new spaces that are emerging, and they probably allow us to see the reconfiguring of hierarchies again between the so-called major sports, uh, the revenue generating sports, as they're often called in the sports world, and those that are supposedly not important, but also play a huge role in recreational life and in the Mm -hmm. life of universities and high schools, for sure.
0: I've watched, I don't have the connections at ESPN to ask this question, I wish I did, but I've watched the... (laughs) the growth of softball in particular yeah. and the way in which softball has become a featured sport on ESPN and wondered about the decision-making about whether that's just a month where they need something to fill a gap or whether, and I someday I'll find that out, but
1: it's a great question. It's a great question. And, and, um, you know, and of course that part of the part of the resistance to support and, and prop and broadcast women's sports is just supposedly not revenue generating, right? That's yeah. what that's what these men executives always say over and over again. Uh mm-hmm. and, and a lot of that is mythology and it just yeah. it just hasn't had the resources put behind it in the ways in which that the traditional male sports have.
0: Yeah. Hey, so one of the things about this book, uh, I mentioned I think before we started taping that that this is the kind of book that would be in Barnes and Nobles. I know not all of our listeners or, or many of our listeners are not academics, but I know a number of them are grad students or, or academics. Um, this book is a really interesting combination of what I think of as academic prose and what I think of as, and this is not a criticism, it's praise of, of sports writing. No. How did you learn to do that? And what advice would you give writers about trying to write academics, academic writing in an accessible and exciting way?
1: Part of the reason why I shifted to sports is because I wanted to undertake this challenge. Right. Mm. You know, um, uh, you know, what sports gives you uh, is something that as much as I love the work I was doing on Cuba, um, you know, it's a small, it was a small audience in this country anyway. Right. Um, And uh, and I wanted to figure out how to write for a broader audience. Mm -hmm. And it is true. And I've seen this in my teaching. That teaching sport brings in, bring, puts you in touch with a, a demographic that, that uh, you wouldn't otherwise have as an academic. I mm. think that's really true, right? I mean, I'm sure there are other folks who work on popular culture who have that experience too, music and theater, whatever. But, but I, I, I love what I see in my classroom, my sport and society class, where I get history major, I get student athlete, I get non-history major, I get the business, I get a range of kids. And that's because sport attracts a diverse mm. demographic. And that's just true. So I decided to work on sports probably because of that, right? I wanted to kind of reach a broader audience, to be honest with you, right? So what did that mean? That meant that uh, I had to figure out how to write, you know, beyond, you know, for an audience that's not just my colleagues in the Department of History or in Black Studies for that matter, right? So, um, so, so you know, it became a project in and of itself. And so what did I do? I do what other writers do. I look at how other people have done it, right? Um, and there's no question that in my view, if you're going to talk about sports studies in academia that the pioneering works were not written by academics. They were written by sports writers. They were written by so-called popular historians, right? And so it's the academics that have been catching up to them as far as Mm -hmm. I'm concerned. Um, And I see myself as trying to catch up to people who've been writing about compelling performance and the ways in which it intersects with history. You know, in the ways in which there's a book by Gary Pomerantz, for example, it's called Wilt 100. It's It's a book built around the very famous basketball game in which Wilt Chamberlain scored 100 points, which is still unthinkable in a small arena in Hershey, Pennsylvania with 4,000 people in the stands in 1962. And he so he takes you through that game, but then he spirals out into this bigger picture of America in the early 1960s, into Wilt's life growing up in Philadelphia, but also being you know living in Harlem, into the ways in which, you know, white ethnics are in this kind of basketball scene in the 1960s and the ways in which Hershey, Pennsylvania was changing in that period, right? I thought it was a brilliant historical approach to writing you know a, a, a route about a historical topic grounded in sports for a broader audience so what, that's what i did i started reading people like that you know i read people like dave halberstams you know um you know the 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 breaks of my god what's the title the famous book breaks of the game of the game yeah right from 1979 and then i read scholars who were making this move my colleague adrian burgos who writes about baseball and latinos he wrote a book and published in 2007, America's Game, mm-hmm. about the experiences of Latinos in baseball navigating the color line from the early 20th century until the 1980s, right? So um, so I did that Soccer Empire by Laurent Dubois, a gifted, prolific historian who came out of the same graduate program I did at the University of Michigan, wrote a great book, Soccer Empire, which is about soccer's uh, um, uh, influence uh, in colonial France and the remaking of France's national identity, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, by following their models, I try to adopt them myself and and i and i and i resisted the temptation which is hard for scholars (laughs) that's not not as hard for historians but resisted temptation to demonstrate how smart i am (laughs) which is really hard to do it's really hard to unlearn that right and to let go of the buzzword get rid of the isation words right and try to take up the challenge of how do you explain racialization without using that word right Mm -hmm. uh how to explain racial capitalism without using that term right for example right um and so, so it became. This is my first attempt to do that with this mm-hmm. book, and it's not going to be my last because I, I, I find myself gravitating to that kind of writing and reading now, even though I'm very much embedded in scholarship. I'm mm-hmm. training graduate students. I'm doing all that. But the beauty of the discipline of history is that you know we value storytelling, mm-hmm. and at the end of the day, you know that's what the historian can fall back on, which is the need to tell the story because you can have your argument. You've got your theoretical apparatus. You've got your conceptual apparatus. But if you don't have a story with evidence, then what does it mean? It means nothing for the historian, right? So, mm-hmm. so to embrace the, you know, the challenge of, of narrative storytelling. And that's what I decided to do. And I think that uh, the, what I love about this book so far is to get the email and the, and the message from the high school teacher or, hell, from my father and my in-laws that they've read the book cover to cover. And that's that brings me a lot of joy to be honest with you because I do think that the work that we produce as scholars should reach that audience. If it's not, then 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 um, then there's something wrong as far as I'm concerned.
0: Well, we always end the podcast with two two questions, and maybe you I've already you've already given your answer to the first, but maybe not. Um, this is for me anyway. My last free weekend for a semester before mm-hmm. class, classes start on Monday, um, and so in theory. Um, my syllabi are all done and I'm prepared. That's not true, but we'll pretend it is for the moment. Um, is there a book or a movie or, or what would you recommend to the audience um, that, was, that was important or moving or interesting to you as you were working on this book or thinking about this subject? What should I read this weekend or watch?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. You know, so the early series of sports documentaries under the 30 for 30, 30, yeah. for 30 franchise. Mm-hmm. Were extremely influential. I think most of those films are not very good right now, but some of those are in that first season, and one film in particular called Fernando Nation, which tells the story of the ascendance of Fernando Valenzuela as an unknown Mexican pitcher who burst on the scene in 1981. Uh, and leads the Dodgers, the Los Angeles Dodgers, to the World Series Championship. But more importantly, he unleashes the energy of Mexican-Americans in Los Angeles. He becomes an icon still is to this day. And what I love about that film is that he shows how this pitcher walked into history and didn't even know that's what he was doing. He becomes a star for the Dodgers on the baseball diamond that was built, you know, that's part of Dodger Stadium, mm-hmm. the stadium that was built on the remains of a displaced Mexican-American community. And in in many ways, he allowed Mexican-Americans to reclaim that space as fans. And what's so powerful about that film are the ways in which he captures what became known as Fernando Mania, the ways in which Mexican-American fans, you know, essentially Mm -hmm. recolonize that space as fans in the the bleachers, in the pavilions, as they call it in Dodgers Stadium. A very powerful story of displacement, of athletic performance, of the impact of marginalized people in a sporting context, in a city. Fernando Mm -hmm. Nation is an excellent film. Um, Now, in a a non-sport context, I'm having trouble thinking beyond the pandemic, I have to say, (laughs) so Mm -hmm. I'm thinking a lot about work. uh, And this is not a sports book, but I have to bring it up, Sarah Jaffe's book, I just picked it up, Work Won't Love You Back, How Devotion Mm -hmm. to Our Jobs Keeps Us Exploited, Mm -hmm. Exhausted and Alone. And this book, you know, I got turned on to this book because she was on um, Ezra Klein's New York Times yeah. podcast, and I see her as one of the more farsighted persons talking about or getting us to reexamine what work, what work means in 21st century America in the context of the pandemic, how our, uh, our fetish for workaholism really doesn't pay off in the end. And I feel like even as me as somebody who is privileged to have a salary and a job has important lessons to learn. I would urge you to really check out the podcast uh, that she was on with Ezra, uh, Sarah Jaffe, J-A-F-F-E. And I think it's a very important discussion about, you know, how we approach work right now. And I think in the context of, you know, of, of, you know, what you could argue is this great work stoppage, (laughs) people leaving their jobs Mm -hmm. because of the inequities and the exploitation that became clear because of the pandemic, among other reasons, it's a really timely and important discussion that I feel like, um, Yeah, I feel like it has some lessons there for all of us.
0: So those are great suggestions, although I will confess they perhaps make my next question inappropriate. But I'll say it anyway because we are academics. Um, Maybe I'll try and figure out a total way to substitute another verb. What topic are you researching now?
1: Yeah. What's up next? Well, Fernando Nation played a role in this book that I just finished and played a role in my next book. So I'm writing a a history of the American stadium, stadiums and arenas. I'm not done with stadiums. I wrote about the Astrodome. I wrote mm-hmm. about arenas in this book, but I, I really want to take on the challenge of trying to understand, in this country, but it's not just a national phenomenon, why stadiums become this ubiquitous institution in cities and in you know other communities across this country, mm-hmm. right? Why is it that become sort of end or perceived to be engines of economic development, right? Why is it that uh, you know municipalities decide that they need to build them to put their cities on the map? Why do they become this important space of congregation and protest, as we've seen since Colin Kaepernick and other athletes before that, you know, made them the stage uh, to, uh, to speak out against police violence and structural racism in this society? Right? So I think there's a deeper history there beyond what we already know, which is that they're boondoggles for sports franchises, <laughs> that they are, you know, spaces to enrich private sports interests. Uh, But in fact, they are institutions that play an important role in American cities. Right. Uh, And I want to know how that happened. And I want to understand why they why did uh, last year did uh, cities turn to them to become voting centers and vaccination sites? Right. Because they are these de facto accessible, um, most of the time, anyway, institutions where people congregate. And that people congregate from a range of backgrounds, even if it's just those who are from marginalized communities who work in them, is what you often see at a place like Yankee Stadium and other stadiums like that. Right. So that's what I'm working on now. Uh, And and I really want to show I want to critique the stadium, uh, you know, uh, the perception of stadium driven economic development. But I also want to talk about their important role in American social movements because they've had a huge role in it. Um, And we've seen that in the last seven, eight years and and certainly before that. And that's the story I'm going to tell in this book. Hopefully it's coming out with basic books. So it's another kind of trade book. Mm-hmm. And I'm really excited to, to, to do this. And uh, I wish I had more time to work on it now, but the semester is going to start, but at least I had a semester leave last semester. And I, I'll be grateful for having any time to work on my book.
0: We've been talking to Frank Andre Gritty about his book, The Sports Revolution, How Texas Changed the Culture of American Athletics. I hope you all will join me in about a week when I talk with Kurt Kemper about his book about the basketball wars, college basketball wars of the 50s and 60s. But in the meantime, Frank, I've been... um, I'm excited about that uh, book uh, that you're working on. I spent way too much of my childhood in tiger stadium or in the silver yeah, dome or in various other places um, when I maybe should have been studying for final exams. <laughs> um, and I've carefully danced around the fact that you graduated from Michigan and I attended Michigan state for my undergrad, <laughs> I State for my grad school. And thank the you for not holding had in me. common was that they had hated Michigan. <laughs> uh, but I hope you come back next time to talk about that new book. And until then, have a wonderful semester. And thanks for being with us. Well,
1: Kelly, thanks. I really enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you very much. And I'm glad you're not holding my, uh, my Wolverine affiliation against me.
0: <laughs> oh, well, I'm saying that publicly anyway.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Take care.